It doesn't seem right to release a new cookbook episode this week with our country in crisis. As I'm trying to understand the moment, I can't help but think about the past. So I'm going to re-release our conversation about your incredible book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Thanks again, Adrian, for coming back on. I really appreciate your voice. Given recent events, I've been thinking about um, a lot, but one thing, I always return back to my father. So he is 80 years years old now. He grew up in segregated Arkansas in a rural part of the state. And I just remember hearing stories of his childhood growing up there where at that time, if you were a black person who looked a white person in the eye, you were asking for trouble. So that just gives you some context for not only the physical violence that would happen from intimidation and, and lynchings and other things, but also just the constant psychological intimidation. And so I try to have dinner with him every Sunday. And a couple Sundays ago, I just asked, uh, hey, Dad, what do you, where do you think this is all going to go? How is this going to play out? And and um, he said, after the civil rights bills were passed in the 1960s, I never really thought it would get this bad again. So, you know, that's that, that's the dream of my father continually being dashed uh, by racism. And then I thought about uh, my own experience. I've been very blessed. I've had very few interactions with police officers. I mean, I've had my run-ins, but they nothing uh, on the scale of what others have experienced. I know that under a similar sort of circumstances, that easily could have been me. And that's just because of the color of my skin. Uh, and then the, the last thing I'll um, kind of end with is like a book into this is um, I think about the words of Gianna Floyd, who is George Floyd's six-year-old daughter. And in the midst of this tragedy, she's been saying, my daddy changed the world. And so I just wonder, uh, is this a moment where we actually will try to change the world? Because we've been in this place before. And I, um, I've always thought that this would have happened earlier. Um, so many different deaths and tragedies have happened, but um, with Michael Brown, just given the level of uh, scrutiny his death got, and then the, the murders of the people in the Charleston, South Carolina church, I thought the fact that that happened in a church, much like the bombing of the four little girls in Birmingham, Alabama did in the 60s, I thought that that was going to be another galvanizing moment for our society, and it just didn't really happen. Um, I will say this, though. It does feel different now. It just feels like white people really have a sense that something's messed up and that, that there's something that needs to be addressed. And um, as simple as that sounds, that really did not happen that much before. The experiences were always uh, exceptionalized or discounted or even outright dismissed. But I think the combination of people being cooped up for you know several weeks with COVID-19 uh, and then the graphic nature of that video and the way that George Floyd was killed, um, I think has deeply affected a lot of people. So um, it remains to be seen if this is just going to be another two-month phenomenon, but I hope it lasts longer. And my feeling has always been that the real breakthrough on race relations in our country is going to happen when white people start talking to other white people about this and confronting racism. Because um, similar to what I said earlier, when I when I do it, I think people listen. It, it may resonate, but I think at some level, it's always just kind of discounted. So um, we'll, we'll see. Thank you so much, Adrian. Now let's take a look back at this episode from December 2017. Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. 
name is Adrian Miller. My latest book is The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. You wrote, we want a personal connection to our presidents and first families, and we believe that food, what presidents like to eat or refuse to eat, what they serve their guests, and what they cook can be a leading indicator of presidential character. Talk about how savvy presidents use food to show that they're regular, everyday people. Yeah, so a lot of presidents have realized that if they are likable by the American public, it helps advance their political agenda. And so I think President Obama is a great example because when he would travel, he would often do impromptu stops at burger joints, um, rib shacks. Uh, he loved drinking beer. That's a very relatable thing for a lot of the American public. You know, if he was uh, drinking a lot of wine, I think people would be a little suspicious and think that he's aristocratic. Um, you know, another president who did this well, I thought, was Reagan by letting people know that he loved jelly beans. And uh, I think Lyndon Johnson uh, was another good example, uh, his love of Southern food and Southwestern food. And he was unabashed about praising Texas chili to the whole world. And then FDR. Um, FDR really loved to be with the people. And you, there are a lot of pictures of him just eating hot dogs or just other kind of very on-the-street level kind of foods with other people. So I, it shows that they have the common touch. The book kicks off with a list of African-Americans by administration who had a hand in presidential food preparation. A couple of things that jumped out at me, for example, was John Adams had one African-American staff member, Eisenhower had 15, and Lyndon Johnson had 31. Did the size of the staff say anything about that particular president? So that is really a function of what was available through my research. So it just so happens that the Eisenhower administration and the Johnson administration were very good at keeping records of who worked where in the White House. So um, the staff is pretty much the same after, you know, for the modern presidencies. Uh, in the White House kitchen itself, anywhere from five to seven people, uh, and typically the staff would be the White House executive chef, uh, the pastry chef, and maybe the pastry chef would have an assistant pastry chef. And then there would be anywhere from three to five um, additional people who are staff cooks. Um, we call them assistant chefs now. And, and there are a lot of um, cooks on loan from the U.S. Navy who cook in the White House kitchen. And so um, obviously presidents that had a long tenure would probably have more cooks working for them. Um, but the early years are a lot of a mystery because there were a couple of fires in the White House over time, and a lot of records got destroyed. So it really just depended what I found in um, secondary sources and primary sources from the presidential libraries. Starting off with George Washington, his enslaved family cook was named Hercules. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, so Hercules uh, gets purchased as a young man. Um, he's a teenager, and he was actually a boat ferryman. Uh, but then he, uh, Washington decided to have him make, made into a cook. So he starts cooking uh, in the Mount Vernon kitchen, and he apprentices under a longtime enslaved cook named Old Doll. Uh, so he learns to cook. And then when Washington becomes president and the executive residence moves to Philadelphia, uh, Washington at first hired a white woman named Mrs. Reed to do the cooking. But I guess her food was straight nasty because uh, she didn't <laughs> even last six months. So he has uh, Hercules come up from Mount Vernon and installs him as the executive chef there. Uh, in the in the um, executive residence, 
The only problem was is that Philadelphia had uh, Pennsylvania, excuse me, had something called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which meant that if you were an enslaved person on Pennsylvania soil for six months or longer, you were automatically free. And so what Washington did to get around this is that just about the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would pack up all of his enslaved people working for him in Philadelphia and send them back to Mount Vernon, leave them there for a couple weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock over again. Talk about when Hercules left. Yes. So uh, towards the end of um, Washington's second term, you know, he's about to retire fully to Mount Vernon. He suspected that Hercules was trying to escape. And the reason he suspected Hercules is that um, Hercules' son, Richmond, who was an assistant cook in the residence, uh, was caught with a, a bunch of money. And it was thought that that would finance an escape attempt. Now, when confronted by this by Washington, Hercules was like, oh, no, I would never do that. I can't even believe you even accused me of that. Uh, but as punishment, Washington sends him back to Mount Vernon, but not to the kitchen, but to the fields where he's doing hard labor. So this world-renowned chef is suddenly making, you know, uh, bricks and clearing brush and clearing crops and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so on Washington's 65th birthday, Hercules escapes. And I think it was very shrewd on his part because he knew there would be a lot of birthday festivities being planned and so people would be distracted. So it's thought that he first goes to Philadelphia um, and then he maybe went overseas. And the only clues we have to a possible overseas trip is that there's a painting of Hercules, who is believed to be Hercules, um, sitting in a museum in Madrid, Spain. And the painting is titled A Cook for George Washington, painted by Gilbert Stewart. And the clothing of the African-American in that portrait is the clothing of a European chef at that time, not what an American chef would have worn. But we really just don't know what happens because uh, Washington was a very vindictive person. And Hercules knew the great lengths that Washington would go to to retrieve um, uh, enslaved people who had escaped um, through trickery, force, and other things. So Hercules knew that if he's going to make the mad dash, he would have to really just disappear. I don't know why, but I was surprised to read in your book that Washington had a really bad temper. He looks so mellow in all of his portraits. <laughs> it's so funny. Yes, he does. He does. <laughs> he looks like a serene presence. But uh, yeah, I read that in um, the work of a noted scholar named Thomas Fleming, uh, who, who wrote a lot about um, Washington. And uh, when I saw those passages about Washington's temper and how he would just um, have these fits of anger, I was really surprised. But then it made sense, given what I've read about how he uh, would go to great lengths to retrieve uh, enslaved people if they had escaped. So it, it just kind of fit that theme. Are there any known descendants of Hercules? No, um, only because, well, let me just back up. Um, I don't know if anybody has attempted to trace the descendants because we do know that Hercules left behind um, some kids and a wife at Mount Vernon. Um, but I don't think anybody's ever really tried to um, identify their descendants in the ways that people have tried to with Thomas Jefferson's enslaved community. So moving on from Hercules, African-American cooks had to know how to make the best French cuisine. Even Jefferson's enslaved chef, James Hemings, was trained in classic French cooking. There was no Julia Childs mastering the art of French cooking cookbook back then. So who taught James Hemings? So it was very interesting. When um, Jefferson becomes minister to France, this is well before his presidency, he actually brings a teenaged James Hemings with him over to France. 
And he has him apprenticed for three years under several uh, accomplished French cooks. And that's how James Hemmings gets that knowledge. And then once he's done with his training, which was quite expensive, um, and we have records of Jefferson kind of bemoaning that fact, uh, he installs Hemmings as his chef de cuisine at his Paris residence. Not far from, I think, I can't remember if it was on the Champs-Élysées, but either very on there or not too far from it. So, um, but what you see through during the antebellum period of uh, U.S. history is that a lot of wealthy white families would actually have their uh, enslaved African-American cooks apprentice under French chefs because French food was the food of entertaining. And they knew that if they were going to establish their mark as a great host or hostess, they needed to have good cooking, even though they weren't doing the cooking. They needed to have good cooking being served from their kitchens. And so they often would, you know, encumber that expense in order to have their uh, enslaved cooks trained. Then Hemings was freed and trained the chefs at Monticello. And sadly, he committed suicide. So only two of his recipes exist today. Is that right? Yeah, so far, as far as I know, only two of those recipes exist. There may be some other recipes in, in some uh, other places. And I, I know that there's some people trying to find all of his recipes. There's a organization called the James, James Hemmings Foundation, which is trying to collect all of this. But as far as I know, there's only a couple of uh, recipes existing in his hand. And one's for chocolate cream and the other is for snow eggs. What are snow eggs? Yeah, so snow eggs is kind of a lost dessert. Um, kind of hard to explain because I'm not a trained chef and I... Um, I definitely had other people make it when I'm hosting up people, but it's kind of a, a meringue type dessert, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's very light, very good, very elegant. So it just shows the skill of this uh, trained chef to pull off that kind of dessert without, you know, the modern equipment that we know of today. As an aside, James Hemmings was Sally Hemmings' older brother who had a long time relationship with Thomas Jefferson and he had six kids with her. Yeah, so um, many believe that the forced uh, sexual relationship with Sally Hemings actually started in France because she came over there as a uh, as a teenage girl um, with one of Jefferson's daughters. And um, so many believe that that uh, started happening then. And, you know, James Hemings would have been very aware of this uh, while he was there because he was, you know, apprenticing and cooking at that time. So just a, a very troubled time for both of them. The interesting thing is people have wondered why they didn't uh, pursue their freedom because similar to that gradual abolition act that Pennsylvania had passed when um, the Hemings were in France, France had something a little similar, although a third party had to intercede on their behalf. Um, And some believe that they may have used that fact as leverage from Jefferson to get a salary and to get certain concessions about keeping the family together and other things. Um, other, other historians have written about this. But, um, yeah, so all of that is in the mix while um, Hemings is working for Jefferson. Do you think Jefferson was the first president who influenced uh, American cuisine, especially with the wealthy households? I'm not sure about that. I think Jefferson maybe gets more credit than he deserves for some of these things. I mean, he certainly was a foodie, but George Washington was a foodie as well. And... Um, People would try to emulate what they served on their tables, but you don't see a lot of records of what um, Washington served necessarily, and you see more about Jefferson. And I think part of it is because uh, some of Jefferson's enemies wanted to highlight the fact that 
he loved French food. Uh, and again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, trying to cast the president as being maybe aristocratic and not having the, the comet ch- touch. But he certainly loved mac and cheese. Um, he served it in the White House. Uh, he was an avid gardener. Um, and many would say that towards the end of his life, he was really primarily on a vegetarian diet and had meat more sparingly than, than anything. So um, don't have a great answer for that question, but it, I know that people were paying attention to his table. Last Friday, mm-hmm. as you saw on my Instagram, I made the baked macaroni with cheese recipe on page 90. Now, was that James Hemmings recipe? So it likely was something that James Hemmings made because uh, we see uh, some elements of kind of French cuisine in that recipe. Uh, so I, we don't ascribe it directly to him, but I'm almost certain that that's something he would have made. And um, I lean on the recipe from Damon Lee Fowler in his book, Dining at Monticello. And that's where I got that recipe from. It was really bland. In fact, the first, the first, uh, noted record we have of someone eating Thomas Jefferson's macaroni and cheese recipe, the guy wasn't feeling it either. Uh, his name was uh, Representative Manasseh Cutler. He was a congressman from Massachusetts, and he was a diarist. And when he first tasted it, he said it was, uh, he didn't say bland, but he said it was strong and disagreeable. Yes, disagreeable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just had to play it straight history. I just had to give people a feel of what food was like that these people were eating. It's no, not I the was, goofy mess that we love today. I was really excited to make it. <laughs> I understand. I understand. So Lincoln's favorite dish was cabbage and potatoes made by Mary Dines. Tell us about her. Yeah, she's a fascinating figure who I actually did not know much about before I dove into the research for this book. So she was a formerly enslaved person who was um, living in a contraband camp, um, either on the board in D.C. or, or quite near it. And so um, Lincoln would often um, pass by this contraband camp as he was traveling to the old soldier's home where he would uh, take a break from the White House. And uh, while at that home, while, while in the camp, he heard Mary Dines singing spirituals and was very moved by the music. Um, and I guess somehow they got to talking or a connection was made, and he invited her to cook for him while he was staying at the old soldier's home. And she, so she takes up residence there, um, and she cooks for him. And then eventually she actually gets invited to cook in the White House uh, for certain occasions. So, um, you know, her story was very interesting how she emerged from slavery and was trying to make her own stake in the world, and she makes this connection to, to Lincoln. One fascinating tidbit in this book is after the emancipation, presidents were increasingly dependent on their black cooks for advice on things such as race relations. Tell us a little bit about that. So once we emerged from emancipation, um, it was a time when Republicans were pretty dominant on the political scene. And a lot of African-Americans joined the Republican Party because they just felt that they were more committed to their civil rights and economic advancement and social progress. So the African-Americans become an important constituency. And so we see presidents actually uh, taking the time to pay attention to that constituency. Now, sometimes, I should say a lot of the times, it was lip service. But um, we start to see presidents do things that we may not have noticed before. And um, so advisors start to emerge. And probably the most famous is Frederick Douglass. But there were people like James Wormley and others who, uh, whenever they could, got the president's ear and just tried to 
press for more advancement for African-American people. Now, because of the code of silence um, that surrounds the presidency, especially with the people who work for them, we don't have a lot of accounts of these things. But every once in a while, we'll get a memoir or some newspaper reference or something about an African-American uh, trying to make the case for uh, advancing the, the status of African-Americans in the country. As a carryover employee from James Buchanan's presidency, Cornelia Mitchell was the first presidential cook to run the White House kitchen in post-emancipation America. Sometimes uh, the status of the White House cook does not depend wholly on the political fortunes of who they're working for. Uh, we often see that the cooks may last for several administrations. And so uh, Cornelia Mitchell um, was definitely somebody who was adept at making the homey dishes that uh, Lincoln liked. Uh, we don't have a lot of information about what President Buchanan um, particularly liked, but he evidently she was good enough for him to recommend her to Lincoln. And so um, the, the interesting thing about President Lincoln is if you look at accounts of meals during his presidency, uh, a lot of the formal public meals were quite elaborate. But when you hear about his private dining, uh, Lincoln ate very sparingly. Uh, he often picked at his food. Um, often people surrounding him who loved him had to force him to, to eat something to sustain his strength. And I, I think that's just the weight of what was going on in our country weighing on him. Um, but those times that, uh, he was happy with food, it was often the, the food that evoked, uh, his childhood and those simple dishes, uh, like cabin and corn and potatoes and, and ham and, and things like that. I guess he was a big fan, a fan of lemon pie as well. That's interesting because he was from Illinois, right? Yes. The most celebrated African-American presidential cook of the latter 19th century was Laura Dolly Johnson. Describe her. Yeah, so she is what I would call a reluctant White House cook. Uh, so she comes on the scene because a young Theodore Roosevelt was traveling uh, in Kentucky, and he actually has dinner with a Kentucky, Kentucky colonel, a guy named John Mason Brown. And Dolly Johnson was Brown's cook. And Roosevelt was so impressed with that meal that when Benjamin Harrison becomes president, he actually recommends Dolly Johnson to Harrison. And um, Harrison reaches out or has some of his people reach out to Johnson. And she just says, look, I don't want to cook in the White House. I just want to leave my private cooking job with the colonel and start a catering business. But there was a lot of arm twisting, and eventually she accepts the position. The only problem was is that there was a French woman already cooking at the White House as the head chef, and her name was Madame Pelunard. And when she saw the headlines of Dolly Johnson getting hired, um, she actually had a very American response. Uh, first, she starts bad-mouthing the Harrison food habits. A chief among their sins was eating pie for breakfast. And then she filed a lawsuit. So this is the first example we know of, of a White House employee actually suing the president. Oh, wow. Uh, everything got, yeah. Um, I, I haven't been able to find out how everything shook out, but obviously it was resolved because it never went to court. Um, but she leaves, Dolly Johnson gets installed as the cook, but she only stays there for about six months because her daughter is uh, six. So she returns back to Lexington, Kentucky to care for her daughter. But then when Grover Cleveland becomes president, you know, was four years later, he actually begs her to come cook in the White House kitchen, and she accepts and ends up cooking there. Um, she's one of the few examples we have of an African-American White House cook trading on their notoriety after they leave the White House. 
Um, in my book, I show a newspaper ad of the restaurant that she ran in Lexington. Uh, and the last we really hear of her in any major sense is that uh, when Alice Roosevelt married Nicholas Longworth, and Alice Roosevelt was the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, we have um, Dolly Johnson sending her a pecan pie. or I'm sorry, a pecan cake, which evidently uh, Alice Longworth really loved. And uh, that's the last we hear of her. In the book, there's a photo of Dolly Johnson in the White House kitchen, and it looked so dark. And I read that the critters were hard to keep out of the kitchen, too. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard the recent uh, reports that the oh, my White House is overrun with mice and other things. But, you know, the White House was built in a reclaimed swamp. So having critters around, you know, and keeping them out is, is a full-time job. But at that time, it was just so bad that Caroline Harrison actually started a campaign to have the White House physically moved to another part of D.C. Uh, she just could not deal with it. But yeah, um, it, it is a dark-looking picture. That's the earliest picture we have of the White House kitchen. And uh, interestingly enough, the White House kitchen was moved to that spot by Mary Todd Lincoln in order to get more light into the kitchen. Yeah, I was happy to so see there was a window or two. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then, but you know, in some, when you look at the, uh, there must have been remodeling or something, because when you look at the White House kitchen um, by the time of Theodore Roosevelt, it seems very well lit. Um, by that time, but even today, you know, when you when you go to the White House kitchen, it's it's pretty much there's no windows around really in the current one. So thankfully, there's electricity to light the way. So Daisy Bonner and Lizzie McDuffie loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he loved them. What made them a special team? I think part of it is that they really cared about uh, the food they were serving to him and took pride in it, which is not the case back at the White House at least for some of the culinary team. So the first ladies were usually the ones that took charge of the food service for the president, planning menus, just making sure everything was right, making sure all the dietary restrictions were met, and so on. But Eleanor Roosevelt was fundamentally uninterested in food. She was a very cerebral person. She wanted to be in policy and out there advocating for things. So she delegated the, the food preparation and all of that to a woman named Henrietta Nesbitt, who was somebody that she met uh, while Roosevelt was governor of New York. Um, they were in the League of Women Voters together. She just admired um, Nesbitt's pluck in running a bakery um, while her husband was unemployed. So she gets involved, but evidently Nesbitt wasn't the greatest cook. And even though there was a team of African-American cooks preparing the president's food, Nesbitt would come and stand behind them and correct what they did and essentially just messed up the food they were getting. So Roosevelt was pretty miserable um, when it came to the, the cuisine he ate in the White House, and he would often loudly complain about it. And I think rationing had an effect on what kind of food he got as well. So when he went to Warm Springs, Georgia, you know, Daisy Bonner and Lizzie McDuffie would make sure he would get the finest Southern food and really tasty stuff. So I think he really looked forward to it. And so um, often he was on a diet and was prescribed certain things to eat. So Lizzie McDuffie and Daisy Bonner would make those prescribed dishes, and then they would look at the president, and if they felt that he looked peaked, as they called it, they would, uh, as they were serving him the, um, you know, prescribed dish, they would just whisper in his ear, "Don't eat that," and he would act like he wasn't hungry and just would pick at his food. And then when everybody cleared out, they'd take him back in the kitchen and hook him up with what he really wanted. Pig's feet. He loved pig's feet. <laughs> yes, he loved pig's feet. Um, 
And he loved the way that Daisy Bonner made them, which was uh, she would broil, split them, broil them, and butter them. Oh, my and, God. And uh, he actually, I know, he actually loved them so much that he served sweet and sour pig's feet to Winston Churchill in the White House. <laughs> Churchill was not feeling the pig's feet. How did he describe them? Uh, when, when FDR asked him about it, he said, um, they're kind of slimy. <laughs> <laughs> they have an interesting texture. And then FDR said, oh, okay, well, next time we'll have them fried. And then I guess Churchill's face did that at all because he said, I just don't think I'd want them fried. Yeah, I'll pass. And they started laughing. <laughs> they started laughing. Is it true that President Eisenhower liked to help make his beef stew? Oh, yeah. Eisenhower was probably the cook, uh, the president who loved to cook the most. So he had this favorite beef stew that he made. And it was a, it had a lot of vegetables in it. Um, and he was quite famous for this stew. In fact, um, during the 1956 election, the Republican National Committee released a, a bunch of recipe cards of this stew, and they encouraged housewives to have stew suppers across the, sun, uh, the country where they would essentially uh, make the stew and invite their neighbors over and talk about Eisenhower, which I think is kind of brilliant. He made this stew, and he was also known for grilling. In fact, he had a grill installed on the rooftop of the White House. So imagine you're walking down 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and you see smoke coming out of the White House. Well, the president up there grilling. <laughs> Just an average day. <laughs> yes. Do you think Ike and Mamie advanced civil rights during their administration? Uh, to some extent, because um, the civil rights movement was uh, really gaining momentum during the presidency. We remember the Little Rock Nine, the um, bus boycott in Montgomery, uh, Alabama. You know, there was just a lot of significant events happening. Now, of course, uh, it was never enough for uh, a lot of people, but um, there were some things of progress made. And um, Eisenhower was really the first per president to have an African-American in his cabinet, um, a guy named Victor Morrow, um, who worked there. So um, there were some slight gains, and um, I think it set the stage for the 60s. But, um, you know, I don't, of course, I don't think there was enough because I wanted African-Americans to have full participation in society, and we didn't really see a major step for them until the 1960s. But, um there's been a, a more and more debate about what Eisenhower did during those times to help advance civil rights. And, and there are quite a few scholars who say that Eisenhower should maybe get more credit for what he did in those times, given the circumstances. LBJ was the last president to bring a lifetime African-American personal cook to serve on the White House kitchen staff. And her name was Zephyr Black Wright. What an interesting figure she was. Yeah, Zephyr Wright is probably the most fascinating person that I encountered during my research. And she's the one person, if I could just pick one person to have dinner with, I think it would be her. Um, because of her point in history and her personality just comes through. And I just think it would be fun to talk to her. I could see us laughing and, and sharing a lot of Southern food. But she was a longtime cook for the Johnsons. They hire her in the early 1940s and bring her to Washington. And many attribute her cooking to um, the reason why Johnson was able to rise rapidly in Congress. So I'm about to tell you something that's going to sound like a fairy tale. But back okay. in the 40s and 50s, members of Congress would have each other over to their house for dinner. No. And they would be collegial. Yeah, they would be collegial and, and get talk? to know each other. Yeah. Wow, that's shocking. Uh, I know. And so very few people turned down an invitation to the Johnson because they knew they were going to get Zephyr Wright's Zephyr right food. Um, but in, she's also, a, in a way, a civil rights advocate besides being a great cook. 
uh, in addition to being a great cook, um, because during the drives back and forth from the ranch in central Texas where the Johnsons lived to D.C., you know, they would drive through the segregated South, and Zephyrite suffered so many indignities that she eventually refused to make the trip. And so at, she would just stay in D.C. year-round. And so when Johnson becomes president and he's advocating for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he actually used Zephyr Wright's Jim Crow experiences to persuade members of Congress to support the legislation. And when he signed it into law, he gave her one of the pens and said, you deserve this as much as anyone else. It was interesting to read that while um, the job was taking a toll on her health, she still had to make low-fat meals. So as a senator, Lyndon Johnson had a pretty massive heart attack. And so he was on a forced diet. Now, uh, you know, he didn't stick with the diet all the time. But uh, Zephyr Wright was really in charge of keeping him happy and healthy, um, but making delectable food. And uh, there was this one funny exchange where uh, she wrote a note to the president basically saying that you're going to eat what I put in front of you and you're not going to complain. And uh, Johnson happily carried that note around and would show it to, to people just to prove that he wasn't becoming too arrogant because his cook was talking him up like that. <laughs> but um, – you know, she says towards the end of her career in the White House, she said that she was thinking about writing a low-fat cookbook, uh, but it never comes to fruition. And I just thought that would have been amazing at totally. that time, you know, in the late 60s to write a low-fat cookbook. That would have been awesome, but it just never happened. Tell us how Jackie O changed the cuisine in the White House. So by the time Jacqueline Kennedy gets to the White House in 1961, um, she was not impressed with White House food. And she wanted it to become more elegant, um, to take on a more French uh, accent. So she fired the Filipino cook who was working there during the Eisenhower administration, a guy named Pedro Udo, and uh, who was essentially a military cook, I believe. And she hires Rene Verdun, a French chef. Uh, she christens the head cook position White House executive chef. Because before that, it was just head cook, first cook, White House cook. They didn't say executive chef. Um, and so menus started being appearing in French and other things. So uh, there was pushback on the French menus. And so they eventually were franglais, a mix of French and English, and then eventually all English. But, you know, it, took, it takes a different turn. And so by emphasizing European cooking by European-trained chefs, Jackie Kennedy, um, I, not, I wouldn't say intentionally, but undercuts the presence of African-Americans in the White House kitchen because they don't have that training. And I don't think it was racism. I think it's just more about elitism than anything and just preferred taste. But we see the presence of African-Americans wane from that point in the kitchen to the point now where there are a few African-Americans in the White House kitchen as assistant chefs. But there has not been an executive chef except for a short time when Zephyr Wright runs the White House kitchen in between um, hiring a different executive chef. We just haven't had one since. So in closing, can you briefly describe the cuisines of the Bushes, Clintons, and Obamas? So I would call the Clintons, um, well, say, let's start with George W. Bush. So in the public sphere, it was uh, French cooking, um, and it was kind of almost rote French cooking. Um, there was actually articles saying, hey, can we have something different for these state dinners <laughs> besides the same old French dishes? Uh but the Bush's cooking, um, George H.W. Bush, I would say was more of a New England feel. You know, the Kenny Buckport, uh, Kenny Buckport, Maine, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Um, well, let's just say the, with George H.W. Bush, it was more the cooking of Maine and New England 
um, with some maybe Texas um, accents here and there. Um, with the Clintons, you've got a mix of uh, Southern food as maybe the foundational cuisine, but um, Hillary Clinton did a lot to celebrate American regional cooking. And I think the cooking that's there to this day is really a reflection of what she did to try to move White House uh, cooking and the food persona from French to more American. Um, and then when we get to the George W. George W. Bush, uh, definitely Texas was celebrated uh, in the food served in the White House. Um, but still, this continuing celebration of uh, American regional cuisine. And then we definitely see that with the Obamas. Um, especially in the state dinners, a lot of the approach was to celebrate American regional foods, but to have a shout out to the host, uh, the visiting country, you know, have a shout out to the flavor profiles that they were used to and maybe the side dishes or, or other things. And then in the current White House, we don't get a lot of information about what's being served, but I would assume it's a fairly a continuation of what was in the Obama White House only because the White House executive chef, Christetta Comerford, uh, still works as the executive chef under the Trump administration, and she's been cooking there since the uh, George, the second term of George W. Bush. One final thing I'm dying to know, and I hope you know the answer. Okay, so you know when presidents go out to dinner at a restaurant, is there a really a guy who tastes everything before it is sent out to him? There is a trained chef on the Secret Service who actually observes everything that is being prepared um, for the president to make sure that it's not poisoned and that it's safe. So there's somebody watching um, the food being prepared. Um, and so the chef is usually the last person to taste the food before it actually goes to the president. That's scary. Yeah, you know, you hear about elimination challenges on TV. But to me, that's an elimination challenge. That's the you ultimate know, secret, elimination secret, challenge. Yeah, to have an armed Secret Service person watching everything you do. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find you on the web? So my, uh, I have a Facebook fan page called The Soul Food Scholar. And then conveniently, my Twitter handle and Instagram handle are at Soul Food Scholar. And then I have my own website, uh, soulfoodscholar.com. So I try to make it easy for people. Now, in terms of the president's book, I do have a separate website for that, which is blackchefswhitehouse.com. Everyone needs to give this book as a gift this holiday season, and I hope, hope, hope that you win the NAACP Image Award for this very important book. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Suzy Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, Music to Cook By, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. And as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts.